Hi, I'm Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. And to help us better understand the situation with the Chinese spy balloon, we sat down with Dr. Tom Lynch, a distinguished research fellow at the Center for Strategic Research of the National Defense University. He'll help us place the balloon incident into proper context of the Chinese regime's broader ambitions. Tom Lynch, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, delighted to be here today. And uh, let me just, just say, uh, you know, again, as I have in the past, that I'm here to represent my own research and analysis and not necessarily those opinions of uh, the Department of Defense, the National Defense University, or the U.S. government. Thank you for that disclaimer, Tom. Really appreciate it. Tom, I'm really curious to get your thoughts over all that's transpired over the past couple of weeks when it comes to the Chinese spy balloon. There's a lot of, you know, talk in the headlines. Take us beyond the headlines, the sensationalism. Is this serious, and just how serious is it? I think what we're seeing now here with the Chinese balloon, and particularly with some statements on both sides uh, of the rivalry, since principally October of 2022. And your listeners and uh, audience may recall that October 22, you know, was the Chinese Party, Communist Party convention. And this is where President Xi anchored himself for a unprecedented third five-year term. And shortly after that, President Xi allowed press uh, clippings worldwide to show that he spent a lot of time talking about military modernization, about the need for the Chinese military to even accelerate its advancement into a modern military. Um, and I think you've seen some of the echoes of that over the last two, three, four, five months as we in the United States have said, all right, there is, there is a sense of urgency for some reason on the part of Xi, and there are movements in the Chinese military that suggest they may be interested in being more provocative going forward. Our response then is to be more attentive to what they are doing that is provocative, and I think to send more signals to say, we are not just going to accept the provocations. We are going to be adjusting our military and our framework to say to you, you cannot intimidate us or our partners and allies in the Indo-Pacific region, particularly because we are gonna compete with you. Now looking at what took place through the CCP's lens from start to finish, from when the balloon took off to when it got shot down. Are they looking at the whole process, do you think, as a net positive, even though the balloon was ultimately taken down, both in terms of uh, intelligence gathering and the reaction from the United States? Or w what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a good question. I'll, I'll amplify that I, I do not read or write Chinese, so I don't have the ability personally to kind of see what they're writing or saying about it. I have terrific colleagues uh, at National Defense University who are in the uh, Center for the Study of Chinese Military Affairs who do read uh, Chinese and, and who have seen kind of a muted Chinese write-up of what's going on here. Uh, my sensing of that, thinking of it in terms of historic great power rivalry is, China has been ratcheting up its desire to gain access to important and critical security and strategic information. This balloon, we now kind of know, has been part of a Chinese program developing over the last three, four, five years to try to find uh, different and novel ways 
to collect information uh, over America and our strategic partners as well. They're doing the same thing we suspect there. Uh, new and novel ways to gather better and more um, refined signals intelligence than they may be getting already from what we know is their uh, severe penetration of our cyber networks and their desire to hoover up information there. So we anticipate, I think, that this balloon had sensors and a sensor suite that was designed to help them uh, gain more fidelity, particularly in the way in which communications go on around military bases, again showing that they're trying to capture things that will enable them to be more uh, competitive with us uh, in the military side if and when they should decide to take some hostile actions against our friends or partners in the region. So I, I think, Steve, that you know, while this is clearly serious, in many ways the balloon is just pulling the curtain back a little bit on what's in my observation already been going on on the U.S. military and security side and that is a firm determination that we must up our game we must increase the degree to which we're paying attention to include now even refining the way our radars search the sky, not just searching for unmanned drones or piloted aircraft or even low orbiting satellites to collect information, but these balloons. And I think we've also then signaled pretty, uh, pretty tellingly on the part of the president that if you are so brazen as to do this, China, then we're going to take action to secure our space. And ergo, we've shot the thing down, and we're trying to figure out what it actually has on it. So I think there's a little bit of embarrassment, perhaps, we're seeing on the part of the Chinese. But at another level, they're like, game on. Tom Lynch, thank you so much. Thank you. Washington, D.C. is changing its criminal code, or at least attempting to. Will Congress be able to come together and act on it is the question. Joining us next to discuss, we have the director of the Center for Law and Justice at the America First Policy Institute. Here's a look at that interview. Scott Erickson, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. The criminal code uh, reform here in Washington, D.C., um, a lot of the supporters of it, they tend to say that uh, the laws are outdated and not compassionate to the criminals. Um, what do you say to that argument? I would say compassion should be held for victims and, and for public safety in general. Um, there's nothing compassionate about letting a violent criminal out of jail early uh, and, and increasing the chance that he or she may commit another violent crime. Uh, the victims are who we should be thinking about. Speaking of the victims, um, who are the victims? Well, I mean, it's, it's everybody, it's all of us, collectively a society, um, but then of course there are individuals who are victimized, whether it's a robbery, and it, doesn't, it just doesn't affect the individual who is uh, directly victimized. It, it, like I said, it affects the community around because it, it undermines your public confidence and your safety and whatnot, and that affects your life. Now, this is a relatively big bill. It encompasses a lot of different things. What are some of the biggest things that just kind of draw a red flag to you? Yeah, I think reducing, you know, maximum sentences, particularly for violent criminals, I think that's a huge sort of a poison pill in this in this bill. Anytime, it doesn't just send a bad message to uh, to society or to the criminal element. It actively undermines public safety. You're actively making the community a more dangerous place when you are telling and you're uh, and you're actually following through with reducing the amount of time that people have to spend in jail and incarcerated. Again, when they particularly when they commit violent crime. It's a really fascinating issue, actually, because you're seeing even the mayor of uh, Washington, Muriel Bowser, uh, 30 Democrats up on the Hill uh, yeah. in the House uh, supporting this or not supporting it. Why do you think that is? I think 
you know, public safety should be a bipartisan issue. It should not be something that we have to be at, at loggerheads over. Um, everybody should want a safe and secure community. Every American deserves safe and secure communities in which to live and raise their families. So I think it cuts across that sort of uh, partisan divide because it's common sense, right? You know, you, you look at the D.C. revised criminal code and you say, why are we reducing mandatory minimum sentencing? Why are we reducing maximum sentences? You know, why are we doing all this? What's, how is this going to make our community safer? And, and common sense says it, it's not. You've actually written an op-ed uh, for The Hill um, laying out why lowering the penalties doesn't actually reduce crime. Are there any test subjects? Are there areas that you've seen where this is proven true? Well, you look at any of the any major cities in America where progressive criminal justice policies have come uh, to bear. You look at San Francisco with their former, now former district attorney, uh, Chesa Budin, who was actually removed from office, which is shocking in and of itself given that San Francisco is a very proudly progressive community. Um, but you look at crime rates there. He, he did exactly what they were trying to do what they're trying to do here in D.C., and quality of life crimes went through the roof. Um, violent crime started a spike. I mean, you see it in, in Philadelphia, where uh, the district attorney, Larry Krasner, has imposed a number of progressive uh, criminal justice policies. You go up to New York City, and you see how that's played out. Uh, it just doesn't work. Uh, they're antithetical to public safety. And do you see more people coming around on this issue? We just had a, a Democratic congresswoman who was assaulted in her apartment building. She's come out very strongly uh, now saying that, you know, the defund the police movement was uh, not correct. Are you seeing a change? Well, I think it's slow, right? I think there were, there were political reasons why the defund the police movement occurred in 2020. And unfortunately, public safety and the law enforcement profession as a whole suffered for that. Um, it shouldn't require you to be a personal victim of crime for you to realize that certain policies are going to increase crime. Uh, you should care about those policies whether or not you are the victim. You should care about the community at large and public safety. Uh, I do think that the, the tone and tenor has, has changed a bit over the past few years because we've seen uh, you know, tremendous fallout from the anti-police movement, the defund the police movement that really came to a head in 2020. And I mean, just to, on a personal note, in Washington, D.C., um, you know, not even a mile away from the Capitol, you could still throw a stone and hit it. Our um, White House correspondent was robbed at gunpoint at 8 in the morning. So this is a city that is re still reeling from crime. Yeah, and again, I think crime has infiltrated communities uh, within D.C. and within other, other major cities where otherwise you might have felt insulated from crime, right? And I think that's why some people are starting to pay more attention to it, which is sad, because we should be concerned with crime in our communities no matter where it's occurring. Um, but yeah, it's, it's occurring here on Capitol Hill, it's occurring all in Georgetown and all sorts of neighborhoods that you would otherwise think should be or would be safe. Could you just walk us through the process of how this bill is taking place, how it got kicked back, and now uh, you have Congress getting involved? Yeah, so, so the D.C. City Council passed this bill uh, over the objections of the mayor, as you indicated. Uh, she vetoed the bill, but they overrode her veto in a, in a near unanimous fashion. But, but, but D.C. is not its own state. D.C. is a federal district. And uh, the law is such that Congress has the authority, and I would say the responsibility, to take uh, legislation like this and to prevent it from, from actually coming to bear. And they can do that by passing a joint resolution. Both the House and the Senate would have to pass a joint resolution, and the President then has to sign it. If they do that, in this case within a 60-day period, uh, which this bill passed in early January, so uh, about two months uh, early into early March we have for this to happen, uh, then the bill would be prevented from, from um, coming to bear. That will be fascinating yeah, to watch for sure. For sure.
Scott Erickson, thank you so much. Thank you. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.